Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 20. In chapter 19, Job was responding to the second speech of Bildad. Bildad had presented a very cold and mechanical view of God, and Job had reacted to that by moving towards an intensely personal view of God. Everything that was happening to Job was attributed to the hand of the Lord. This wasn't a cold mathematical process at all. God was personally moving against him. He has trapped me. He has turned the lights off and thrown me into the dark. He has stripped me and humiliated me. He has broken me down and rooted me up and assembled his armies against me. And most painful of all, Job says, he has conducted a public relations war against me. He has fabricated evidence that has convicted me in the court of public opinion. All my friends have turned against me. The urchin in the street sees fit to despise me. God has stripped me of all human comfort. I am alone in the dark in deepest despair. But then... Out of the dark, Job emerges as a spiritual giant. He rebounds miraculously from the deepest pit to the highest height. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's pretty far-seeing faith for someone at this stage of redemptive history. And maybe there's a lesson in there for us. Maybe there is some insight as to the purpose of God in our pain. Maybe we can only reach higher after we have been pressed lower. Maybe God enrolls us in the school of affliction so that he can graduate us to greater strength, clearer understanding, and more constant compassion on the other side. Now, that isn't all there is to learn about these things. Obviously, there are several chapters left in the conversation, but we did mark that as a significant discovery nonetheless. In chapter 20, Zophar responds to this marvelous speech of Job, and we almost wish he hadn't. Zophar typically speaks last among the friends, likely because he was the youngest, or it may mean that he is the least renowned as a wise man, though, of course, we can't be sure. He is certainly the least impressive of Job's friends. Let me remind you of what Francis Anderson said about him back in chapter 11 when we last heard from him. The Namathite is the least engaging of Job's three friends. There is Not a breath of compassion in his speech. Zophar's wisdom is a bloodless retreat into theory. It is very proper, theologically familiar, and unobjectionable, but it is flat beer compared with Job's seismic sincerity. 
If that was true back in chapter 11, we expect it to be so here again in chapter 20. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Zophar is a bit of a prickly pear. He is offended by the closing paragraph of Job's last speech. You'll remember how Job ended. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, How will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Now, you and I spent our whole time wondering over Job's incredible insights and far-seeing faith as expressed mostly in verses 25 to 27. Job said some absolutely extraordinary things here. He expressed a hope in the resurrection that was so extraordinary and so inspired that some commentators actually think we must have misunderstood it, mistranslated it. Because you don't get another statement this clear on resurrection and final judgment until Daniel chapter 12. That's at the far other end of the Old Testament canon. How could Job be seeing here what basically no one else will see again for another 800 years? That's the question scholars ask. Either we've misunderstood what Job is saying, or Job has just had the greatest epiphany in the first half of the Old Testament. So we were probably right to get excited about that. That was a big moment. But Zophar, the Namathite, missed it entirely. He didn't hear that part because he was offended by what he thought he heard in verses 28 to 29. Hear that again. Job said, if you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Zophar thought he heard Job saying that everyone will face judgment from God at the end, which he did. Job said that. But all Zophar heard was the suggestion that he would face judgment. Him, a world-renowned wise man, a rich man, a man obviously blessed by God. He was offended by that suggestion. And as a result of being easily offended, he missed hearing one of the most important statements in the entire Old Testament. And I think there is a lesson in there for us. Easily offended people tend to be very bad listeners and very poor learners. Zophar is offended by what Job said, and apparently by the fact that Job appears to be drawing upon new sources of information. New insights are often offensive to people who place an inordinate amount of trust in tradition. Zophar seems to be one of those people. Listen to verse 4. Do you not know this from of old, since 
man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Zophar says, tradition teaches that though the wicked may start out well, eventually their sin will find them out. His height may mount up to the heavens, his head may reach to the clouds, but he will perish forever like his own dung. That's an unpleasant bit of imagery. But the basic contention here is reasonably easy to understand. Just like Bildad, Zophar is holding to his proverbial view of the world. We will reap what we sow. The wicked will fall into their own snares. The wise eventually prosper and succeed. Been there, done that. We've heard this before. And Job has answered this before. But Zophar wasn't listening. He was too busy being offended. Verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Are you hearing that? That's basically Zophar's most useful contribution to the discussion. Tremper Longman III provides a very helpful and succinct summary of this section. He says, Evil is like a delicacy that one eats and savors before it turns bad, and those who consumed it vomit. Again, lots of colorful imagery in this section. Basically, what Zophar is saying here is that the reason justice works slowly is because God allows wicked schemes to ripen and to eventually explode within and upon those who conceived them. Obviously, then, this takes time. It takes a while for poison to work through the body. It takes time for fruit to rotten and spoil. But it does happen, and it ought to happen. This is a a wise way of managing evil because it has a certain precise reciprocity to it, and because it tends to make a powerful impression upon all those who observe it. Now, that is true. And and more than that, that is biblical. God 
says this about himself when he reveals his character to Moses back in Exodus 34. He passed by him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Are you hearing that? God says that he lets evil run for three to four generations. He lets consequences fall and spread and consume across decades, even hundreds of years. This is part of how he communicates the effect and cost of sin. And and you will see it writ large in family narratives of all those who despise God and ignore his commandments. So that's part of who God is. Zophar is not entirely wrong here. In fact, he's really close to being right here. Justice is slow. In fact, it is even slower than Zophar knows. Once again, the friends of Job are underestimating the patience of God and overestimating the extent to which things tend to work out justly in this life. But Zophar didn't hear about the life to come and final judgment because he was too busy being offended. Once again, we see how much Zophar's quick temper has cost him in this conversation. Verse 20, because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. In verses 20 to 23 there, Zophar continues on with his main metaphor. The wicked eat it all. They're like locusts, but eventually... It all turns to rot in their stomach. The wicked eat themselves to death, and God uses their own greed and lack of self-control to bring about their ultimate ruin. Now, again, that's pretty biblical. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 1, 26 to 27. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed 
with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sometimes, Paul says, God gives you over to what you want. He lets you eat your fill of it, but then it poisons you from the inside. Sometimes what you lust after ends up being what kills you. There is a form of justice to that. That is just desserts, you might say. That is part of how God governs the world. In verses 24 to 25, Zophar experiments with a parallel metaphor. He says that the wicked are like people who dodge the sword only to be struck by an arrow as they think to escape the battlefield. Finally, in verses 26 to 29, Zophar says that the wicked person will eventually end up in utter darkness and will experience the judgment of fire from the Lord. One wonders here whether Zophar is speaking better than he knows. The bottom line is that Zophar picks up Bildad's proverbial view of the world and takes it a step further. He does see more of the patience of God. He does understand that there are wise and good purposes behind the apparent delay. But he doesn't see far enough. And he doesn't know as much as he might had he bothered to listen to what his friend was trying to tell him. But thankfully, the conversation continues. In chapter 21, we have the final speech in the second round as we hear again from Brother Job. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.